Please turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 19. I'll be preaching this morning in verses 12 through 22. John chapter 19, verses 12 through 22. And as you turn there in your Bibles, please join me once again as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful for the grace that we have received from His sacrifice. We ask now that You would open our minds and our hearts that we might have a greater appreciation for the work of Christ upon the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John 19, verses 12 through 22. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am. King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Last week, I had the blessing and the joy of traveling to Virginia to see my mom, who uh, most of you know is battling ovarian cancer right now. She is doing well responding well to treatment and got good news about uh, in her blood work and she in fact is scheduled for surgery on December 7th and so I so greatly appreciate your support and your prayers for my mom and for our family and uh, had an opportunity to just sit and talk with her and how she's processing all of this and she told me about the day that my father came home with the lab results, my parents are very traditional, by the way. My mom, she knows what a computer is, but she wouldn't dare touch one of those things. 
even to view her cancer results. So my dad came home that day, and they sat, my parents and my younger brother, in the living room together to talk about the results. And he did, in fact, share with her that the results were positive for ovarian cancer. My mom told me, and I asked her, I said, well, how did you respond to that? How did you process that? She said, well, I looked at your brother, and I said, John, I know you have that secret stash of Girl, Girl Scout cookies. You go get them, and you bring them to me. We need those right now. And then they sat, and they all ate two boxes of Girl Scout cookies. I'm not certain how they thought the cookies would help the cancer, but it couldn't hurt to help, or it couldn't hurt to try. There are moments in our lives when Jesus will not appear to be king to us. Moments when you get the news that you have cancer and you eat two boxes of Girl Scout cookies to deal with it. Moments when you receive news, moments of difficulty, moments when anxieties from life keep you awake at night. Moments when sorrow is painful and the clouds of sadness never seem to clear from your heart and from your mind. Moments when you lose a job. Moments when you have a rebellious child. Moments when you walk through a divorce. In those moments, Jesus may not appear to be a king to you. And I hope this passage helps you in those moments. Because John emphasizes for us in John 18 and 19 that even though Jesus does not appear at this moment to be a king, Jesus is in fact king. You see that in this passage? You see how the word king and kingdom is repeated over and over again or alluded to in this passage. Jesus is king. He rules and reigns. He is the sovereign over all the universe. Even in the moment in our lives when He doesn't appear to us as King. In this moment, in John 19, Jesus does not appear to be King. He, is, he has been scourged. He, has, he is beaten. He is bruised. He is bloodied. He is mocked. He is unjustly condemned to die. He is scourged again. He carries a cross. He's crucified on that cross and He dies all to the mocks of the Jews and the Romans. In this moment, Jesus does not appear to be King. He does not appear to be ruling and reigning. And yet, John is letting us know that despite all appearances, Jesus is King. And during those moments of doubt in our life, I hope you will remember, Jesus is King. When the anxiety afflicts you and troubles 
weigh heavy upon your heart. Remember, Jesus is king despite all appearances to the contrary. I want you to see this morning that Jesus is king. If Jesus is always king, why is it so difficult to see it sometimes? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it? If He is king, if He is always king, why is it so difficult to see it sometimes? I want you to see in this passage, first, Jesus is a misjudged and rejected king. I want you to see that. Let's look at the passage together, and we will see how Jesus is a misjudged and rejected king. Pilate is seeking to release Jesus. The Jews have charged Jesus with a political crime that He is King. King of the Jews, they tell Pilate. Pilate has arranged for Jesus' arrest and he has put Jesus on trial, he has examined Jesus, and he does not find Jesus to be king. And so he intends to release Jesus. And then the Jews, they level a religious charge against him. It's the charge of blasphemy. We looked at that last time. That Jesus claims to be the Son of God. And so, under Jewish law, because He has blasphemed the name of God, claiming to be the Son of God, the law says He must die. And so that's what they tell Pilate. Pilate examines that again. And he does not find guilt in Jesus, either on the political charge of being king, or on the religious charge of being a blasphemer. And so we read in verse 12 that Pilate is seeking to release Jesus. In fact, the first beating that Jesus received early in this chapter, where we read in verse 1 that Jesus was flogged, it, it was designed to teach Jesus a lesson to not cause problems and upset the state of peace in Jerusalem, and then to release Him. The Jews, however, force Pilate's hand. Look with, it, look with me at verse 12. They cry out. They screamed out. You can just imagine as the mob has come together and they say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. This was probably a term of endearment in the Roman Empire that political leaders would have enjoyed that they would be considered Caesar's friend, that they enjoyed a special status as a governor over a province, enjoyed a special status in the Roman Empire with access to Caesar. And so what the Jews are saying is that if you release this Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate, everyone knows, even those of us who are Jews, that if you rise up and, and, and uh, uh, state that you are a sovereign, Rome will come in and crush you. If you try to stage a rebellion, Rome will come in and crush out the rebellion. And so what the Jews are doing then is they are, are forcing Pilate's hand to say, look, we have brought him before you with the political charge and with the religious charge of blasphemy, and if you don't carry out some justice for us, what are they, what are they indicating? We're going to report you to Rome. And then Caesar will come in and he'll teach you a lesson. And so Pilate then, without 
really any other option in order to preserve his own position, his own prestige, his own power. He takes Jesus in verse 13. He hears these words, realizing the predicament that he's in, takes Jesus to the place where he formally pronounces judgment against Jesus. And there, Jesus is condemned to die. This was the day of preparation for the Passover, we learn, the text tells us. It's about the sixth hour. What John is telling us is that the trial has been going on for a long time now. Jesus is arrested in the early hours of the morning under the cover of darkness. And the day is carrying along. It's getting later in the day. And so Pilate has caved into their demands, but not without first mocking the Jews. He takes Jesus, presents them, presents Jesus to them in a sort of mock coronation. You'll remember that Jesus was adorned in purple robes, that He is wearing a, a crown, not a beautiful crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He has been mocked by Roman soldiers and now Jesus is presented to the Jews like you would present a king, but it's all a mock coronation and Pilate presents Jesus beaten and frail and he announces him, announces to them, behold your king. And how do the Jews respond to that? Verse 15, Notice again, they cry out. You see that repeated from verse 12. They cry out. You can just imagine the shouts and the uproar as the crowd has now assembled and gathered together. And what do they ask for? What do they demand? They want Jesus taken away. Away with Jesus. Crucify Him. They want Him put to death. And Pilate continues the mocking of the Jews. What does he ask of them? It's a rhetorical question. You really want me to crucify your king? Pilate asks the Jews. And what do they answer? Notice. You just can't miss the weight of this. Of Jews who had hopes that their land would be free and that they would govern themselves of hundreds of years of being in exile under foreign dominion, under foreign kings and rulers who oppress them. Notice what they confess now. And this is, just isn't the mob that says this. These are the chief priests in Jerusalem. These are the very leaders, the very religious leaders in Jerusalem. And notice what they say. We have no king but Caesar, they say. So Pilate delivers him over to them to be crucified. The Jews had long awaited the promise in Scripture that God would give them a king. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God made a covenant with David. And He promised David that his throne would endure forever that one of David's sons would always sit on his throne and that that son of David would enjoy a special relationship with God. That God would be to that king a father and that king would be to God a son. 
and that God would prosper that king and even when he got out of line and sinned, that God would discipline him like a father disciplines a son. And so there's this constant hope that one of David's sons will come and rule and reign on the throne and provide salvation to God's people. When God's people were in exile in Babylon, there was the hope that came from the prophets. They reached back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, referencing God's covenant with David and declaring forth to the Jews that even though they were in exile, there was still hope for them. Isaiah 9, verses 6-7 through provides the promise that a child, unto us a child is born. The government will be upon His shoulders. He will enjoy these marvelous names. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And oh, that's what they wanted. They wanted peace in their kingdom. Jeremiah 23 made the promise that even though the family tree of David looked like it had been hacked away so that there were no branches left, God would give to the family tree of David that there would be what? What's what's the Messiah called? The branch. That the tree would grow once again. That a righteous branch would grow for David, Jeremiah said. Ezekiel chapter 37 draws upon the analogy of Israel as a flock. And it provides the promise that God would give to them another shepherd king. Just as David was a shepherd and he became king, God would give them another king and he would shepherd God's people. So there was always this hope that God would send to them the Messiah and that this Messiah would be their king and that He would at last institute peace for them. Knowing all that, it helps you understand the weight and the gravity of the blasphemy from the words of the chief priests here in our passage where they proclaim, we have no king but Caesar. What are they doing? They, they are, are throwing away all hopes of salvation. John tells us to expect this. He tells us to expect the rejection of Jesus. If you go all the way back to the prologue in John chapter 1, we read John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that Jesus, He came to His own. He came to His own. Even though He was not of the world, He came to the world and He came to His own. And what did they do? They rejected Him. And here in John 19, we are reading the height of that rejection. He has been misjudged and He has been rejected. Why allow Himself to be treated in such a way? Why not just peel back just an ounce of His glory? Why not call upon legions of angels? Why not just call upon one angel to come down from heaven? Jesus is misjudged and rejected because His kingdom doesn't meet our expectations, does it? He is not the kind of king that we would expect or look for. The Jews, they expect a king who will come and defeat their enemies. Pilate expects a mighty conqueror to come. And they do not find in Jesus one who meets either of those qualifications at this moment. 
Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not what? Of this world. He's a king, alright. But his kingdom is not of this world. It is not the kind of kingdom that you can understand with your rational mind, Pilate. He is not the kind of king that you would expect to see like Caesar who rides in with a massive army and demands that people bend the knee or he puts them to death. He's not that kind of king. He's dealing with a far greater foe than a foreign enemy. He is concerned about the sin in our hearts. Tells you something about the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? Sin is so serious that when God fulfilled His promise of sending a king, He is not a worldly king who institutes a national peace immediately He is the King who comes and establishes His kingdom in our hearts. Freeing us not from the tyranny of evil rulers, but freeing us from the tyranny of sin. And we wait for His kingdom to be fully realized one day. Jesus is King, even if He is misjudged and rejected. I want you to see two reasons in this passage why Jesus is a misjudged and rejected king. Why He allows Himself to be a misjudged and rejected king. I'll show them to you here. He is a misjudged and rejected king so that He can be numbered with transgressors. That's why in this moment, Jesus allows Himself to be misjudged and rejected because Jesus is numbered with transgressors. What what happens with Jesus at this point? They take Jesus. He bears His own cross. Verse 17 tells us. Roman culture, when the crucifixion would be declared and pronounced upon someone, the individual would be beaten. And then it was customary for that person to carry their own cross. Perhaps they would carry the full cross. Perhaps they would carry the cross beam of that cross. Whatever it was that Jesus was carrying, He is carrying it, John tells us. He carries His own cross and He carries it to a place called the place of the skull or Golgotha. Uh, This is a place outside of Jerusalem. We we aren't 100% certain where this is. Why is it called the place of the skull? There's a lot of theories on this. Maybe it's because of the appearance of the hillside upon which Jesus was crucified. We don't really know. John's point is to let us know that Jesus has been taken out of Jerusalem. That's what he wants us to key in on here. Jesus is being taken out of Jerusalem to a separate place, and there he is crucified, they tell us. He tells us in verse 18. And he's crucified not alone, but he's crucified with two others, one on either side. They are insurrectionists. We learn some translations translate it as robbers, but it's the same word that we have for Barabbas that the other Gospel writers tell us led an insurrection and murdered someone. Probably political activists that Jesus is being crucified with. They are insurrectionists. And Jesus is being crucified 
next to them. And Pilate writes upon a placard, nails it to the cross, posts an inscription there, and what does it read? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What's John John doing here? John's being very deliberate for us, letting us know that Jesus is fulfilling Scripture's promises. Jesus is being taken outside of Jerusalem. He's being taken outside of the camp, you might say. Under the Old Testament law, an animal, when it would be sacrificed, the guilt and sin of the people symbolically would be placed upon that animal. The animal would then be sacrificed. The blood would be poured out upon the altar. And then the remains of that animal, do you know what they did with it? They took the remains of that animal outside the camp. And it was a symbolic way of letting God's people know that your sin has been put upon another and it has been removed and taken away from you. And what John is telling us here is that Jesus is being crucified outside the camp. He is the one bearing the sin of God's people. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that Jesus suffered where? Outside the camp. And that we are to go to Him. Where? Outside the camp. To be numbered with Him. To be counted with Him. Why? Because it is there that He makes atonement for sin. He bears the guilt for sin. John is also telling us by letting us know that Jesus is crucified with criminals. That Jesus was numbered with transgressors. Does that sound familiar? I told John this morning, who taught Sunday school, I said, John, you preached a little bit of my sermon this morning. Isaiah 53, the promise of the suffering servant is that the suffering servant would come and that he would be numbered with transgressors, that he would bear the sin of many, and that he would make intercession for transgressors. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is being carried outside of the camp, bearing the sin of humanity, bearing the sin of the lost. There He is crucified, and He is being numbered among those who rightly deserve such judgment. That's what Jesus is doing. You see, the Gospel, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is not simply... Your sins are forgiven because God has declared that your sins are forgiven. That is not the Gospel. Now, it's true. God does declare that our sins are forgiven. But there's a reason why. What's that reason? It's not just because God decided to let you off the hook. It's not because God decided that, you know, you didn't really mean it, and so your sin isn't really that big of a deal, and so God's going to give you a pass for your sin, and so He will just say that your sins are forgiven, and He'll just, he'll just forget about the whole thing. That is not the Gospel. That is the false, false Gospel of cheap grace. The Gospel of Jesus Christ says that our sins are forgiven and that God declares us righteous because Jesus has received upon Himself the, ju- the punishment for our sins. 
that the Father poured out upon him all the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And because he receives our sins, we are declared righteous. That's the reason Jesus is misjudged and rejected in this passage. He allows Himself to be misjudged and rejected even though He is King. Even in this moment, He is King. He's misjudged and rejected so that He can be numbered with transgressors and bear their sins. There's a second reason here. I want to show you this. Jesus allows Himself to be misjudged and rejected so that He might reign over sin from the cross. That He might reign over sin from the cross. Jesus is crucified. His crime is written. King of the Jews. And it is written, Pilate has it written, in Aramaic. This was the language of Jews. It was written in Latin, which was the official language of the Roman Empire. And it was written in Greek, which was the common language of the entire Hellenized world. Pilate wants everyone to be able to read who Jesus is and why He's being crucified. Jesus is King of the Jews. And so you can just imagine as, as travelers are there to observe Passover, that people are passing by and they are seeing Jesus there upon the cross and they are reading King of the Jews. It is Pilate's mockery of the promise to the Jews that there would come a king. It's Pilate's mockery, a way of reminding them that they're under Rome's rule and reign and that if anyone dares stage an uprising, that what has happened to Jesus will happen to them. How do they respond to this? The chief priests, they tell Pilate, notice verse 21, what do they say to Pilate? Don't write this. Don't write Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's not our King, they're saying. But rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Isn't it interesting? Those two words sound familiar to you? We have been reading in John's Gospel about the great I Am. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the Vine. Before Abraham was, I am. It's an echo of Exodus 3.14 of God's self-disclosure to Moses as what? The great I Am. What's your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. And Jesus, in John's Gospel, He declares Himself to be God by saying, I am and here, in John 19, ironically, the Jews, they confess finally, Jesus said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate refuses to take it down. I've written what I have written. There was a tradition in the early church that the Lord reigns from a cross. You can read about it in Justin's book, The Dialogue with Trifo, is what the book is called, and it's derived from the Septuagint translation 
in Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And then the translators, they added this, not original to the Hebrew, but they added this, the Lord reigns from the tree. And so this tradition was carried forth, the idea that in a sense that the cross is a throne. And there upon the cross, as Jesus is raised up and exalted, He rules and reigns over what? Sin. F.F. Bruce articulated it well. The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is He who stretched out on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. What's Jesus doing there upon the cross? He is ruling and reigning over sin. What He is doing is He is declaring that sin no longer has power. It no longer has reign. It no longer has dominion. For there upon the cross, Jesus is conquering sin so that you and I can be freed. This morning... If you've never done so, you need to confess your sin to King Jesus. You need to bend the knee to Him. Either Jesus can receive the punishment for sin that you deserve, or on the day of judgment, you can receive the punishment for sin that you deserve. Those are our two options. Either we can bear our own punishment one day standing before God, or, we can go outside the camp where the Lord of glory was numbered with transgressors, where He reigned over sin from the cross. And there we can receive His grace, and there we can receive His pardon. What sort of struggle do you have this morning? What sort of anxiety do you have this morning? What sort of worry and weight are you carrying? Let me tell you that your greatest need has already been met at Calvary. Jesus is King. And when you struggle, you need to remember what this passage is teaching. Jesus is King. He's already conquered your greatest enemy and mine. Let's go to Him in prayer.